This episode is sponsored by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it for free in the App Store. I was told by Mrs. Dinahy, it is what the old people say, that after death the shadow goes wandering, and the soul is weak, and the body is taking a rest. The shadow wanders for a while, and it pays the debt it had to pay, and when it is free, it puts out wings and flies to heaven. A shepherd. Do you believe Roland Joyce was seen? Well, he was. A man I know told me he saw him in the night of his death in Esser Kelly, where he had a farm, and a man along with him going through the stock. And all of a sudden, a train came into the field and brought both of them away like a blast of wind. An Islander. There's a house down near the sea, and one day the woman of it was sitting by the fire, and a little girl came in at the door in a red cloak about her, and she sat down by the fire. And the woman asked, where did she come from? She said, she'd just come from Connemara. And then she went out, and when she was going out the door, she made herself known to her sister that was standing in it, and she called out to the mother. And when the mother knew it was the child she had lost near a year before, she ran out to call her, or she wouldn't for all the world to have not known her when she was there. But she was gone, and she never came again. From Visions and Beliefs of the West of Ireland by Lady Augusta Gregory. It's rich in lore of all sorts, and though the most attention is perhaps paid to the beasties and magical folk, one should not overlook the rich tradition of the corporeally challenged that has long been a part of the culture of the Emerald Isle. The fate of the soul has been woven into the fabric of Irish wisdom with silver threads of hope, experience, speculation, faith, and fear. Shades of the dearly and severely departed darken the tales passed through generations and have colored the actions of the countless nearly departed. You'd think the living would have their hands full with banshees, leprechauns, headless horsemen wielding spine whips, or the occasional puka, but no. There's a host of apparitional goodness and badness to deal with as well. From creepy boogeyman-type specters to aggravating poltergeists, you'll find no shortage of Irish ghosts. And tonight, we raise a glass, or three, and tell some of those tales on this episode of Blurry Photos. I'm David Flora, and welcome to Season 9 of Blurry Photos. Stop what you're doing. Pop open a Guinness. Like that. Or pour a shot of Jameson, raise it up, and let us drink together right now. For luck, for love, for hope, for a better future, 
or a past we can both learn from and be inspired by. Here's to you for listening, and I sincerely hope, wherever you are, whenever you are, you're staying safe and staying smart. Slancha. Now, more than ever, it feels like the jungle is closing in around us. Predators are stalking closer, and the night is extending well past its welcome. It isn't easy to steel yourself and resolve to see it through to the sunrise. Sometimes you just stare at what remains of your campfire and watch those embers fade and let the darkness pull a cold blanket over you. But we don't know if that's better than continually poking the embers and blowing a glow back into them, fending off the dark and what's inside it, waiting for a single ray of dawn to sneak into the sky. For what it's worth, the jungle is full of these little camps, and under the daunting canopy, a vast sea of embers reflects the unseen stars above. And all embers are the same in their own way. All camps are connected, though they know it not. As we all sit through a long dark together, it says something that many want to connect in any way they can, and that many turn to creativity with the time they're given. Thank you for coming to my little camp to spend some time hearing storytelling and letting your imagination free for a bit. To podcasting, an eight years worth of storytelling, curiosity, and learning. Slancha. Now, if you're new to the show, welcome. And here's your customary caveat. It's a tradition here at Blurry Photos to begin the season with a celebration of spirits, <laughs> both discarnate and bottled. I have gotten slish-sloshed for this episode. Every year now since the start of Season 2 in 2013. And I have covered a topic of Irish lore for the first episode of every season since. Except for that one time I had a concussion and pushed the drinking back to an episode on Carl Jung. And boy howdy, what a blessing in disguise that was. I choose an Irish topic to begin with because Ireland is great. The culture is great, and the stories are fantastic. And they shine with a little extra twinkle in the eye when enjoying some potent potables. So, this episode is not the usual fare for the show, as I am not fully under the influence for any other episode in the year. In fact, this is slurry photos. Next episode, your regularly scheduled program will be coming back. Now, that you've received your caveat, let me give a quick update. Shadows in the Desert, the documentary I'm hoping to put together with Derek Hayes, has just made our funding goal. Humongous thank you to all who help support this, whether monetarily or by sharing or by just being excited and throwing some positivity our way. Thank you. We knew you guys were amazing, and this just proves it tenfold. Thank you. So, for this episode, I have curated four tales of Irish ghosts, three of which are straight-up poltergeists, which seem to fly under the radar for Irish stories, 
but are very much a part of any discussion for Emerald Isle apparitions. I'll be telling I'll be telling you some stories of a ghost called Petticoat Loose, a poltergeist called Corny, a spirit from Inniscorthy County, Wexford, and the haunting of a lonely country cottage in Cunion, Northern Ireland. So let's finish off this Guinness, adjust our waistcoats and corsets, and grab a little flask of holy water and head off down the road without a care in the world. Hosting of the Sheen by W.B. Yates. The host is riding from Nocnaray and over the grave of Clunabera, Quilcha tossing his burning hair and Niamh calling, Away, come away. Empty your heart of its mortal dream. The winds awaken and the leaves whirl round. Our cheeks are pale, our hairs unbound. Our breasts are heaving, our eyes are agleam. Our arms are waving, our lips are apart, and if any gaze on our rushing band, we come between him and the deed of his hand. We come between him and the hope of his heart. The host is rushing twixt night and day, and where is their hope or deed as fair? Quilcha tossing his burning hair, and Niv calling, away, come away. In Ireland's southern region, there are tales told of a spine-tingling specter that haunts the roadways and serves quite well as a boogeyman to warn kids to stay out of trouble, or if they misbehave, or if some poor sap finds himself walking a lonely road in the dead of night, they might catch a visit from Petticoat Loose. Now, there are no doubt several versions of who Petticoat Loose was or how she came to be. One origin says she was a statuesque, if a bit rough and ready, farmer's daughter named Mary Hannigan. And if there was one single solitary thing she was known for, it was drinking and dancing. Her nickname came from a night filled with both, when, during one raucous spin around the dance floor, her skirt got caught on a rogue nail causing the buttons to bust open and the skirt to fall, embarrassingly, to the floor. Not one to let a little mishap raise her ire, she began throwing haymakers at the gobs of any and all who were laughing and jeering. Sorry, should have said she was one to definitely let a little mishap raise her ire, and she ran that ire up a flagpole and saluted it by busting the lips of many a folk that night. Or you see, if there was one thing Mary Hannigan was known for, it was drinking, dancing, and fighting. 
After the skirt incident, she gained the nickname Petticoat Loose. Mary married a young cattle farmer, but maintained relationships throughout town. So when her husband disappeared one night and was never seen again, suspicion fell on her not-so-secret lovers. But with her temper, no one dared question the situation. About a year later, she was in a local pub when someone challenged her drinking skills by placing half a gallon of beer down in front of her. Without a second thought, she downed the brew easily, wiped her lips, fell down deader than a gnat and a glass of wine. Now, Mary wasn't what you'd call the religious sort, and though folks turned up for her funeral, no priest was called for last rites. Never a great play in these stories. Seven years to the day after her death, it was a lively night of dancing at the pub she met her demise in. A man who had stepped outside for a breath of fresh air, for a breath of fresh air, returned to the dance floor white as a sheet, explained that he had seen Petticoat Loose herself, Mary Hannigan, sitting out in the yard. Yard. The pub stayed full till dawn, as no one dared venture outside to see for themselves. She then began to be seen here and there, and one night managed to jump on a horse-drawn cart, much to the dismay of the driver. She began to gleefully explain that she had a ton in one hand, a ton in the other, and with each statement, the cart slowed and the horse strained to pull it. After proclaiming a ton in each leg, she ended with saying she had a ton in her belly, at which point the poor horse fell deader than a fly at a frog party. Folks began carrying holy objects and things to ward evil off, and it wasn't long before a priest was consulted. He set out in the dead of night. Soon, sure enough, he was confronted by Petticoat Loose. Wasting no time, he grabbed a bottle of holy water and banished her with a prayer condemning her actions and sending her to the deep lake of Bay Lock, where she was to be confined until she could empty the lock using only a thimble. There she remains, where caution is a must, for when she's not trying to empty the water one thimbleful at a time, she lays in wait, hoping to grab the legs of unsuspecting folk and pull them under the surface forever. That's pretty terrifying, but another version of the tale is a bit less origin story and a bit more ghostbustery. A man had to venture out into the night when his wife was fixing to have a wee babby and they needed a nurse. On the road, he stopped dead when ahead there floated a hideous old woman with long stringy hair that seemed to move like it was underwater. Her empty eye sockets showed a grisly gleam deep within them, and her clothing, which was from a foregone time, seemed to glow, though no light source was near. With unearthly speed, she raised her hands and came towards the man's throat, but stopped at his sudden exclamation. Wait! He said, If you kill me, you'll be killing tree. 
let me find help for my wife, an unborn wee babby. I give you my word, I'll return tomorrow. You can take me then. The spirit stopped, and her hands slowly lowered. The man hurried along on his errand. The next day, though joyous at the birth of his child, the man eventually gave in to despair. Seeing him in this state, an older gentleman inquired as to why he wept. After hearing the story, he summoned a priest who recognized the phantom as Petticoat Loose and came up with a plan to help the man. That night, the man went back to the spot from the night before, and sure enough, Petticoat Loose appeared and made for him again. This time, though, he splashed a large circle of holy water around him. Undaunted, she passed through it, and he made a second, smaller circle. Again, she floated right over it. With little room left, he made a third ring of holy water. Just as she was about to pass over, the priest leapt from the bushes where he was hiding and threw his stole over her shoulders. Her scream cracked across the hills as she struggled with the apparent great weight of the holy object. The priest then banished her for her sins, condemning her to the bottom of the ocean for seven years. Though, after the time was served, she returned with a vengeance, harassing and even killing some folks on the roads in the southern counties. The priest was able to catch her once more, though, and this time banished her for good to the sea floor, where she remains to this day. There's more to worry about in the Irish town and countryside than dangerous rando phantoms. Also, that is now my Star Wars name. Rando Phantom. You're welcome, he said to himself. Sometimes the terror came from constant annoyance supplied by a good old-fashioned poltergeist. One such... Entity was recorded in the book True Irish Ghost Stories and made one Dublin family's life miserable for a while. The ghost was commonly called Corny by the family, and he answered to this, though it was not his proper name. Corny made his presence manifest to a family shortly after they'd gone to reside in a house near St. Stephen's Green, family, known simply by the first initial of their surname, A, became aware of him in the following manner. Mr. A had sprained his knee badly and had to use a crutch, which at night was left at the head of his bed. One night his wife heard someone walking on the lobby, thump, 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 as if imitating Mr. A. She struck a match to see if the crutch had been removed from the head of the bed, head, head of the bed, but it was still there. From that on, from then on, Corny commenced to talk, and he spoke every day from his usual habitat, the coal cellar off the kitchen. His voice sounded as if it came out of an empty barrel, or, and stay with me on this one, a coal cellar. <laughs> he was very troublesome and continually played practical jokes on the servants who, as might be expected, were in terror of their lives of him, so much so that Mrs. A could hardly induce them to stay with her. They used to sleep in a press bed in the kitchen, 
and in order to get away from Corny, they asked for a room at the top of the house, which was given to them. Accordingly, the press bed was moved up there. The first night they went to retire to bed after the change, the doors of the press were flung open, and Corny's voice said, Ha ha, you devils! I am here before you! I am not confined to any particular part of this house! Corny was continually tampering with the doors and straining locks and keys. He only manifested himself in material form to two persons. An older servant, who died with the fright, and to Mr. A, when he was about seven years old. The latter described him to his mother as a naked man with a curl on his forehead and a skin like a clothes horse, which means pale. One day... A servant was preparing fish for dinner. She laid it on the kitchen table while she went elsewhere for something she wanted. When she returned, the fish had disappeared. She thereupon began to cry, fearing she would be accused of making away with it. The next thing she heard was the voice of Corny from the coal cellar saying, There, you blubbering fool, is your fish for you. And suiting the action to the word, the fish was thrown out on the kitchen floor. Delicious. I'll have a slice of that tile lapia. Kitchen kitchen tile lapia. You can just have that one. Relatives from the country used to bring presents of vegetables, and those were often hung up by Corny, like Christmas decorations around the kitchen. You, you really showed him, Corny. There was one particular press in the kitchen he would not allow anything into. He would throw it out again. A crock with meat in pickle was put into it, and a fish placed on the cover of the crock. He threw the fish out. What? What the hell did I just read? There was one particular press in the kitchen. Like like the press bed? Is he talking about a bed? Meat in a pickle? And a... Oh, come on. Silver teaspoons were missing, and no account of them could be got till Mrs. A asked Corny to confess if he had done anything with them. He said, They are under the ticking in the servant's bed. What did... Ticking? Why are there so many words for beds? He had, so he said, a daughter in Blank Street. It is not included in this book. And sometimes announced that he was going to see her, and would not be here tonight. On one occasion, he announced he was going to have company that evening, and if they wanted any water out of the soft water tank, to take it before going to bed, as he and his friends would be using it. Subsequently that night, five or six distinct voices were heard, and next morning the water in the tank was as black as ink. Or, and I really want you to stay with me on this, coal? Black as coal? And not alone that, but the bread and butter in the pantry were streaked with the marks of sooty fingers. That's right, not inky fingers. Sooty fingers. Coal. So, uh, somebody's in that coal cellar, yo. A clergyman in the locality, having heard of the doings of Corny, called to investigate the matter. He was advised by Mrs. A to keep quiet and not to reveal his identity as being the best chance of hearing Corny speak. He waited a long time, and as the capricious Corny remained silent, he left at length. 
The servants asked, Corny, why did you not speak? And he replied, I could not speak while that good man was in the house. The servants sometimes used to ask him where he was. He would reply, The great God would not permit me to tell you. He was a bad man, and I died the death. He named the room in the house in which he died. Corny constantly joined in any conversation carried on by the people of the house. One could never tell when a voice from the coal cellar would erupt into the dialogue. He had his likes and dislikes. He appeared to dislike anyone that was not afraid of him and would not talk to them. Mrs. C's mother, however, used to get good Mrs. C. Mother, however, used to get good of him by coaxing. An uncle, having failed to get him to speak one night, took the kitchen poker and hammered at the door of the coal cellar, saying, I'll make you speak. But Corny wouldn't. Ha ha ha, what a rogue. Next morning, the poker was found broken in two. This uncle used to wear spectacles, and Corny used to call him derisively, Four Eyes, watch out. Boom roasted. An uncle named Richard came to sleep one night and complained in the morning that the clothes were pulled off him. Corny told the servants in great glee, I slept on Master Richard's fate all night. Gross. Finally, Mr. A made several attempts to dispose of his lease, but with no success, for when intending purchasers were being shown over the house and arrived at Corny's domain, the spirit would begin to speak, and the would-be purchaser would fly. They asked him if they changed house, would he trouble them? He replied, No, but if they throw down this house, I will trouble the stones. At last, Mrs. A appealed to him to keep quiet and not to injure people who would never injure him. He promised that he would do so and then said, Mrs. A, you'll be all right now, for I see a lady in black coming up the street to this house. She will buy it. Within half an hour, a widow called and purchased the house. Possibly, Corny is still there, or... Our informant looked up the directory as he was writing and found the house marked vacant. That one from True Irish Irish Ghost Story. A quick trip down the M11 brings you to the town of Inniscorthy, County Wexford, and another poltergeist account from a true Irish ghost stories. I, I am. I am literally saying Irish. <laughs> God. True Irish ghost stories. In the year 1910, in a certain house in Court Street, in Escorthy, there lived a laboring man named Redmond. His wife took in boarders to supplement her husband's wages. And at the time to which we refer, there were three men boarding with her, who slept in one room above the kitchen. The house consisted of five rooms, two on the ground floor, of which one was a shop and the other a kitchen. The two other rooms upstairs were occupied by the Redmonds and their servant, respectively. Take notes, everyone. There will be a test at the end. 
The bedroom in which the boarders slept was large and contained two beds, one at each end of the room, two men sleeping in one of them. John Randall and George Sinnott were the names of two, but the name of the third lodger is not known. He seems to have left the Redmonds very shortly after the disturbances commenced. It was on July 4th, 1910, USA, that John Randall, who is a carpenter by trade, went to live at Inniscorthy and took rooms with the Redmonds. In a signed statement now in possession of Professor Barrett, he tells a graphic tale of what occurred each night during the three weeks he lodged in the house, and as a result of the poltergeist's attentions, he lost three quarters of a stone in weight. It was on the night of Thursday, July 7th, that the first incident occurred, when the bedclothes were gently pulled off his bed. Of course, he naturally thought it was a joke and shouted to his companions to stop. As no one could explain what was happening, a match was struck. The bedclothes were found to be at the window, from which the other bed, a large piece of furniture which ordinarily took two people to move, had been rolled just when the clothes had been taken off Randall's bed. Things were put straight and the light blown out, but, Randall's account goes on to say, it wasn't long until we heard some hammering in the room. Tap, 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 like. This lasted for a few minutes, getting quicker and quicker. When it got very quick, their beds started to move out across the room. We then struck a match and got the lamp. We searched the room thoroughly and could find nobody. Nobody had come in the door. We called the man of the house, Redmond. He came into the room, saw the bed, told us to push it back, get into bed. He thought all the time one of us was playing a trick on the other. I said I wouldn't stay in the other bed by myself, so I got in with the others. We put out the light again, and it had only been a couple of minutes out when the bed ran out on the floor with the three of us. Richard struck a match again, and this time we all got up put on our clothes. We'd got a terrible fright and couldn't stick it any longer. We told the man of the house, Redmond, we would sit up in the room till daylight. During the time we were sitting in the room, we could hear footsteps leaving the kitchen and coming up the stairs. It would stop on the landing outside the door and wouldn't come into the room. Footsteps and noises continued through the house till daybreak. The next night, the footsteps and noises were continued, but the unfortunate men did not experience any other annoyance. On the following day, the men went home, and it is to be hoped they were able to make up for all the sleep they'd lost on the two previous nights. They returned on the Sunday, and from that night till they finally left the house, the men were disturbed practically every night. On Monday, 11th July, the bed was continually running out from the wall with its three occupants. They kept the lamp alight, and a chair was seen to dance gaily out into the middle of the floor. On the following Thursday, we read of the same happenings, with the addition that one of the boarders was lifted out of the bed, though he felt no hand near him. It seems strange they should have gone through such a bad night, exactly a week from the night the poltergeist started its operations. So the account goes on, every night that they slept in the room, the hauntings continued, some nights being worse than others. On Friday, 29th of July, quote, the bed turned up on one side and threw us out on the floor, and before we were thrown out, the pillow was taken from under my head three times. The bed rose up and fell back without making any noise. This bed was heavy. It took 
both the women and the girl to pull it out from the wall without anybody in it. There were only three casters on it. End quote. The poltergeist must have been an insistent fellow, for when the unfortunate men took refuge in the other bed, they had not been long in it before it began to rise, but could not get out of the recess it was in unless it was taken to pieces. It kept very bad, reread, for the next few nights, so Mr. Murphy from the Guardian office and another man named Devereaux came and stopped in the room one night. The experiences of Murphy and Devereaux on this night are contained in a further statement signed by Murphy and corroborated by Devereaux. They seem to have gone to work in a business-like manner. As before, taking their positions for the night, they made a complete investigation of the bedroom and house, so as to eliminate all chance of trickery or fraud. By this time, it should be noted, one of Mrs. Redmond's lodgers had evidently suffered enough from the poltergeist, as only two men are mentioned in Murphy's statement, one sleeping in each bed. The two investigators took up their position against the wall midway between the two beds, so that they had a full view of the room and the occupants of the bed. The night, says Murphy, was a clear, starlit night. No blind obstructed the view from outside, and one could see the outlines of the beds and their occupants clearly. At about 11.30, a tapping was heard close at the foot of Randall's bed. My companion remarked that it appeared to be like the noise of a rat eating at timber. Senate replied, you'll soon see the rat it is. The tapping went on slowly at first. Then the speed gradually increased to about 100 or 120 per minute, noise growing louder. This continued for about five minutes when it stopped suddenly. Randall then spoke. He said, The clothes are slipping off my bed. Look at them sliding off. Good God, they're going off me. Mr. Devereaux immediately struck a match, which he had ready in his hand. The bedclothes had partly left the boy's bed, having gone diagonally towards the foot, going out at the left corner, and not alone did they seem to be drawn off the bed, but they appeared to be actually going back under the bed, much in the same position one would expect bedclothes to be if a strong breeze were blowing through the room at the time. What is that? But then everything was perfectly calm. A search was then made for wires or strings, but nothing of the sort could be found. The bedclothes were put back and the light extinguished. For ten minutes, silence reigned, only to be broken by more rapping, which was followed by shouts from Randall. He was told to hold on to the clothes, which were sliding off again, but this was of little use, for he was heard to cry, I'm going, I'm going, I'm gone. <laughs> He's turned into a home run, and when a light was struck, he was seen to slide from the bed and all the bedclothes with him. Randall, who, with Senate, had shown considerable strength of mind by staying in the house under such trying circumstances, had evidently had enough of ghostly hauntings, for as he lay on the floor, trembling in every limb and bathed in perspiration, he exclaimed, Oh, isn't this dreadful? I can't stand it. I can't stay here any longer. He was eventually persuaded to get back to bed. Later on, more rapping occurred in a different part of the room, but it soon stopped, and the rest of the night passed away in peace. Randall and Sennett went to their homes the next day, and Mr. Murphy spent from eleven till long past midnight in their vacated room, but heard and saw nothing unusual. He states in conclusion that, quote, Randall could not reach that part of the floor from which the rapping came, 
on any occasion without attracting my attention and that of my comrade. End quote. Final harrowing, heinous spectacle of specters is located up in Ulster, Northern Ireland. The poltergeist made life hell for a certain family between 1913 and 1914 at a little remote farmhouse outside Five Mile Town near Cunion in County Fermanagh. Side note: It looks like Cunin, but from what I understand, it's pronounced Cunion. I'm sure. Neither are right. <laughs> At the time, the little house was buried deep in the woods on a hill. It wasn't the easiest place to get to, an extra creepy feature when dealing with an entity from the bowels of Hayawala, aka a child going through puberty, as some folks say poltergeists are. Firewalls of Hiawala. The tale begins with the Murphy family, the Bridget, nope, the widow Bridget Murphy, born in 1870, her son James and six daughters, Annie, Mary, Teresa, Bridget, Bridget Jr., Catherine, and Jane. Michael Murphy, Bridget's husband, had died in an accident in 1907. About five years later, the family began experiencing strange phenomena. There would be knocking at the door and sometimes windows, and when someone would go to answer, no one was there. It gradually worsened after several weeks to include more frequent knocking, footsteps in the upstairs loft, tapping that seemed to come from inside the walls, footsteps on stairs, and more. Every time they checked for the source of the sound, 
it would find empty rooms, empty stairs, empty explanations. They finally asked some neighbors to come verify these sounds, and apparently the neighbors had no trouble hearing the same things. Door knocks, rattling windows, thumps, footsteps. And like most poltergeist activity, the phenomena worsened. Plates began to fly off the table and smash against walls. Beds would lift off the floor on their own and drop violently. Pillows would be jerked from under their heads while sleeping. Soon, Mrs. Murphy decided enough was enough and got the church involved. A father, Peter Smith, and a father, Eugene Coyle, of nearby McGuire's Bridge, came to investigate and had some chilling experiences of their own. Father Coyle was said to have seen furniture levitate and sometimes move across the room. Shapes and shadows that would appear and disappear on the walls and under bedclothes. Father Smith was said to have sat on the bed and felt movement under him, which seemed like snakes squirming. A snoring sound could be heard in the dark. After challenging the entity, he didn't see anything but he seemed to feel something like a rat under his hand, which turned into an eel wrapping around his wrist. A human shape appeared under the sheets at one point, before briefly collapsing to nothing. Spitting and hissing could be heard from no discernible point of origin. Bed sheets were thrown across the room. The priests made the children hold hands and he placed one of his hands over theirs and the other over their feet, yet the sounds continued, meaning it wasn't the children. The sounds could also repeat a tune when someone whistled, and sometimes knocked along with the beat. Holy water was tossed with abandon, causing something to scatter across the wall and make the knocking more intense. A mass set in the house made things bearable for a bit, but not for long. It would also apparently answer questions by knocking for yes or no, or for a number. Once, a sound like a dog or sheep walking was heard in the upstairs loft. Suddenly, the priest felt a rush of air come straight down beside him from ceiling to floor. The sound ceased. Not long after, writhing under the bedsheets was said to be witnessed, and a sound could be heard like a gurgling in the throat and pain, which ceased after ten minutes. No one knew where the entity that troubled the Murphys came from, but there were rumors that an old pensioner had been murdered there once, or that a previous occupant had hanged himself there. While at least one source says the family fled to America and were nary troubled again, most sources say the poltergeist followed them and caused so much ruckus on the ship that the captain almost threw them overboard. Finally, in New York, the noises and trouble eventually died down and ceased. Though one source said one of the daughters spent the rest of her life in a mental institution from the trauma caused by the haunting of Cooney. Right now, the Cunyan house is still somewhat standing but it's not buried in a spooky wood anymore. In fact, the area has been cleared of trees and a road has been built up to it. 
and that may be because they're trying to figure out how to capitalize on the tourism the house has sparked, or the tail has, I should say. Lots of amateur ghost hunters have been traipsing about because it's been featured on ghost hunting shows so much lately. So, if you go, be careful. It's in a bad state, both from disrepair and the disincarnate. And there you go. A couple of spookies, a couple of geisties, all Irish ghosts in a petticoatless, bedsheet-hating, disembodied nutshell. And now for the form beneath the sheets that feels like squirming snakes, puns. Folks in the south of Ireland take heed not to go out on the evenings in the autumnal months. They know there's a risk of running into a nasty entity that's a real pain in the ass and aggressive. Being the fall, it's chilly out, but any amount of activity can work up perspiration, especially in fowls, who actually regulate body temperature by perspiring between their head and body. With bird migrations happening at that time of year, folks know to be wary of the sweaty throat goose. It took a lot longer to get there than I thought it would. Stephen King wrote a short story about some creepy kids in Ireland that were said to be descended from an old poltergeist. If you're in the mood for a creepy story set in Dublin, go read Children of the Corny. And pun. Hey, welcome to season nine. What a way to start the season. The world is slowed almost to a halt. We got some slurry photos action here and shadows in the desert just got funded. Oh boy, what will season nine bring us? Uh, thanks. Thank you to Evil Mike and James for their donation. And Brianna for buying me a coffee on coffee.com, ko-fi.com, slash blurry photos. You guys are phenomenal. Thank you. If you'd like to help out and are able, please punch the donate button or buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com, slash blurry photos. Another huge way to support is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Review is as good as gold around these parts. And Miss Cryptid is right around the corner. Stay safe. Stay sober-ish. And once again, a glass raised to Ireland and to season nine of Blurry Photos. I have been the spirit of David Innisflorthy Slauncha. <laughs> <laughs> 